0: Um, So we have a little time together before the conditions called a retreat dissolve and the retreat comes to an end. So you can see that this retreat has come together due to causes and conditions and those conditions are slowly dissolving and by 11 o'clock or so the conditions are not in place. This idea of a retreat, impermanent so we should consider really how to spend our time these last couple of hours together or hour and a half so we drew up a set list (laughs) first we'll sit so nobody can stand it anymore (laughs) and then if there's any time left over we'll do the rest We'll give you the last opportunity to ask each one of us a question or two. And then we'll each offer some reflections on life in the Dharma. And then share some merit, have some closing uh, comments. And we'll wrap it up by 10.30. Is that okay? just looking to establish a mutual (laughs) space. So let's just sit for about 15 minutes. So the Buddha said, to paraphrase the Buddha, something like, as long as the community of practitioners, the Sangha, meet together in large numbers and come together in harmony and practice the Dharma and discuss the Dharma and take care of any other Sangha business and they leave or they separate in harmony, as long as we continue to do that frequently, then the Dharma will continue to be available and the Sangha will thrive. So we're almost done. We've come together in harmony, relative harmony. We've stayed pretty harmonious throughout our time together. We've certainly practiced the Dharma, we've discussed the Dharma. There may be some further discussion yet. And if there's any other sangha business that needs to be considered and resolved in some way or addressed in some way, this is the time to do that. And then if we're in harmony at the end of an hour and a half, then we've done our part. So, yeah. So we thought that we would give you the one last opportunity to ask us any questions about the dharma or your practice or taking practice out into the larger world of activity and you can either assign the question to one of us or we'll draw straws and see who gets to answer it. (laughs)
1: The baby boomers, they're going to age out. I'm afraid <laughs> so. <laughs> I know. It's delightful to have here to another generation. And do you see a healthy cadre of people stepping in?
0: There's a... <laughs> you know, this is... Uh... This is a question that was asked of the Buddha, you know, when he was about to pass away. Not that I'm about to pass away, but (laughs) it's like, hey, who's going to kind of lead the show after you're gone? You know, it's like, uh, aren't you going to assign some successor or something like that? And he didn't. He said, let the the Dharma be your guide. Let what I have uh, spoken and taught be your guide going forward. And I think that what we do in a training process currently with Vance is, um, him the opportunity to share his understanding of the Dharma and if it resonates with anybody and they consider it valuable or important, then, then maybe he'll end up having the opportunity to teach. But just because you kind of put the name, I'm a teacher on, doesn't really mean that anybody's interested in what you have to share, really. So um, I think it's incumbent on we teachers to um, do the best we can to select next generation and empower them. And, but it's really up to the students to decide whether that person will really become a representative of the Dharma. What do you think, Vance?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds. um, Yeah. It's. It's hard to say. My first response was, I just don't know. You know. But there's a a degree of. um, I guess I have a pretty good degree of faith that, you know, the confluence of of science and you know American culture and psychology and the Dharma are continuing to harmonize along with uh, a lot of these uh, technological social. Networks, and I think we're still in such an early phase of of kind of these streams merging together that we don't quite know what the final product will be. Um, But you know, I think, uh, yeah, and I just have a lot of uh, faith in in Steve and some of the senior teachers, and um, yeah, it's it's just it's interesting. I find it strange that even that I'm I'm sitting up here, but. You know, so so when the self doubt comes up around my own understanding I can, you know, trust that, you know, faith in this, in the senior teachers that you know they'll kind of bring the appropriate uh, appropriate students into the fray. Um, and and it'll work itself out. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah,
3: a question that, that comes up that after any practice oriented retreat is um, how to combine it with other practices. So it, in my case, I've been doing uh, mainly Samatha meditation style. Well, Raper Bay in the UK, but he teaches in tourism and Israel style. Um, and it's always a question how to, com- you know, given that this is great, and I'm, certainly what I was uh, hoping for, we'll Uh um, But it's hard to know how to combine that with uh, something quite different, like, like Samatha practice, or sh- should be.
0: Well, Mark, Mark has practiced with dozens of Asian masters and and Western wannabes. So, how do you do it?
4: <laughs> well, I think there is an, I think there's a healthy tension in our own mind, let alone in the wider Dharma community, about how to practice. And. uh so I, first of all I guess the, the, my response would be it's okay if there's a little confusion and tension in our minds um, around different approaches to practice and I think it's useful to aspire. I remember uh, an interview someone did with Joseph Goldstein a long time ago and there was just this response he gave to this question, how do you practice? Sort of an innocent question this interviewer was asking and uh Joseph gave this really beautiful response about the seamlessness. So I aspire to this seamlessness where sometimes the mind is relating to experience in this way and sometimes it's relating in this other way. And toward the end of that response, Joseph said, and there's a seamlessness of like wisdom is doing the work of practice. There's some momentum and wisdom knows in a sense what the right medicine is at this moment. Now I'm not... For a lot of us, that would mean we're constantly second-guessing ourselves, neurotically wondering what is the right medicine, is this the right medicine, um, did I take too much, should I take more? <laughs> <laughs> so initially, we have to, uh, we, d- we know that we don't know, but we'll dig in for a while. Like, well, I know this is good enough. I know the mind is interested in this. I know I'm learning From this practice so then we we have to give ourselves to it that's the important thing we really give ourselves to it for a while because hanging out in doubt doesn't lead to any learning any insight Um, so we have to give ourselves to practices my my style is when I go on a retreat generally speaking I just do what the teacher tells me to do as best I can because it's even if it's not my style of practice like what I consider my the way my dharma personality, likes to practice. I find that I learn a lot doing what I don't like to do, and this is probably generally true in life. (laughs) So when I'm on retreat, or for whatever reason I'm in the vicinity of a teacher, I generally try to tune into her or him and learn what I can learn. And then when I'm more on my own, then I aspire to this more seamless style of practice. And I will practice at times, Uh, a very clear samatha concentration-style practice, and at other times, uh, not directing the attention at all, but simply letting mindfulness open to what's arising in the moment as best I can, and uh, and everything in between. So I'm not sure that's a direct answer, but (laughs) I offer that.
0: <laughs> can, can I amend that just a little bit the question not just sitting practice but how do you how do you practice with eyes open in, in any posture <laughs> <laughs>
1: Could I answer your question, Steve? (laughs) Uh, I've done some practice with my eyes open. I actually started off on the Dharma path. Uh, My first teacher was a Zen teacher. And in that tradition, often, if not always, they have you keep your eyes open. And these days, I often sit with my eyes open because I have, as you know, by now, two young children. If the eyes are not open, then the mind is not awake. So... um, (laughs) So I found it very helpful and it, it does feel different just because the power of seeing you know, is so strong, especially in our culture. Our culture is one that lives very much through the, in the visual field, very much through the eyes. So as soon as the eyes are open just even a little bit, the experience can feel so different even if we're still just sitting you know, and everything else that we're doing is exactly the same. So it, it can take a little while to, if we haven't done it before, to get comfortable with the eyes being open. If we're used to sitting with the eyes open, it can take a while to get comfortable with having them closed. But um, I've found sitting with the eyes open at least some of the time to be really helpful because usually <laughs> when I need to practice, the eyes are open. You know, When I'm not doing my formal practice, just moving through the world. So spending a little time with the eyes open is a, I've found to be a great transitional practice to get a little bit of a feel for how do we keep awareness when that really powerful visual field is part of what we're noticing. So just resting the eyes downwards a little bit, you know, just keeping them the, on the floor in front and just taking in that seeings happening. And that can be a really interesting experience and a really interesting investigation to, to start to take in the experience of the light coming in and the colors. And this is part of the walking meditation, part of what we get in walking or just in general activity practice. But we can sometimes uh, get a clearer sense of it when the body is still and nothing else is going on. So, as with everything else here, you know, we don't take a dogmatic view on it. Do one, do the other, do whatever's helpful. And I do think it is helpful to experiment with both, with both ways.
0: Well, that's a a big question, Uh, just the historical changes that are are occurring in uh, Burma since I've been there. Um, Just as you know, uh, just from the news, there's huge, huge changes going on. Uh, When I first got there in 85, it was still a pretty 19th century country as far as the monastic order as far as the 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 monasteries were still really full and vibrant and the uh, monks the elder monks were the uppermost um, uh, social strata in the country and the whole country was very uh, devout really even though they were run by a military which was you know, nominally Buddhist, but not really practicing. And I would say that uh, it was the power of the of the monastic order that kind of kept that kept the social order in place during that time. But now there's been a lot of political change, uh, a lot of economic change, and the West they've they've opened their borders. Really, they have kept them closed until you know the 90s, somewhere in the 90s two thousand something. So they'd kept it closed, and and really there wasn't much Western influence in there. Um, it was very difficult to get information about the West there. So now that there's a lot of economic opportunities for other countries, then the the whole the whole package is coming in quite rapidly. And you know, when I first got there, any Uh, you know, the smartest kids all went to the monastery and the nunnery because there was no other education to speak of. And now there is not much more education, but there are other opportunities. So you don't get this, you don't get the same um, class of monks uh, and nuns. So yeah, there's, there's huge changes underfoot and, you know, it'll be, it'll be a few decades working its way out probably, but in some ways, because Burma was so closed and so isolated from the West, they preserved the purity of their Theravada Dharma teachings and, and monastic order well into, you know, at least to, you know, well into the late 20th century, early 21st century, and it just made it available in a very pure form for we Westerners to get. Same thing happened in Tibet; it was a very pure form of their um, teachings. But now both countries. Along with Thailand, are losing, um, losing it actually quite rapidly. That's my very uninformed, just uh, opinion, but a lot of change happening.
4: that could deliver wrathful blows. I don't know if that was me, but uh, <laughs> I mean the the person that comes to mind that the three of us has, have practiced with and uh, Steve and Deborah much more than myself is Sada Upandita who has a reputation of being a very fierce teacher and demanding teacher. Um, so it might have come up in that context. I'm not remembering when I said that, which is not unlike me to not remember. <laughs> Yeah, anything? Well, what, would it, what would it look like for them to be fierce? Well, I think... I guess
3: I'd I, because I, you were talking about it, I think, in the same, um, the same evening where you talked about you found yourself cooking and you were acting in some aggressive way. Ah, yeah.
4: yeah now now I have it placed yeah I was reading a quote from Ajahn Semedo and he was saying that you know metta can be a pat nice boy or a slap and he used the word wrathful in that quote that I read Um, and I I think from my experience the experience I draw on is not so much I don't have enough confidence to do that in a dharma setting personally yet (laughs) (laughs) But I know from personal experience uh, teaching uh, sixth grade students that I had to learn that I had to learn how to uh, use a lot of energy. First, I used it out of aversion. You know, they knew how to get. I remember distinctly one of the first years I was teaching that age group. This is back in the eighties, and um, and I just started laying into some students and then I saw that's my dad I mean it was like it was a real psychological insight I mean I just oh yeah and my dad was a good guy I mean he wasn't not he wasn't abusive at all but he had anger like all of us do and it came out every once in a long while and there it was in very much the same way but over the years of working and I worked with uh, inner city uh, students with behavior problems and so you know, in their, in their lives, they need noise, they need volume in order to know your, you mean what you say. It's just they won't know you're serious if you're using a normal tone of voice. And so I learned how to be big and how I communicate, in or, but, but not, be, uh, not have any trace of aversion, or at least not much. Sometimes there was a little identification with the intensity of the interaction, but it wasn't like in it I, I felt in anywhere in my heart that I wanted them to be harmed or felt even afraid of them. Maybe more fear uh, in the beginning stages than anger, you know, like somehow me feeling vulnerable in some way. But I think we all have to learn how to use energy. Some of us really need to learn how to be receptive and some of us really need to learn how to be assertive. And uh, But it doesn't mean that it's not aggressive in the real sense of the word or aversive or fear-based in the real sense of the word. It's really coming out of the heart wanting to take care of what's in front of us. Now we won't always know whether our response is correct but the motivation can be correct even if we don't really know how to be skillful in the moment. That We can be pretty clear when the when mindfulness is strong that the motivation is good. And then We'll find out whether the action was good because mindfulness will continue and we'll see the fruits of our loud voice, for example, and we'll see if it actually was a skillful response. Even though we're already clear the motivation was good.
3: And, and when you say that you're not ready to um, be, I guess, fierce in, a, in the capacity of teaching the dharma, you you're not ready to do that yet. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. yeah, and they've had some problems with that. <laughs> I've been whacked a few times with that stick. <laughs> um, so it's, you have enough confidence, not just that your motivation is good, but that your mindfulness, the clarity in the mind is good, so that you have a sense of what's being set in motion, so that you like help somebody see what they aren't seeing, and maybe don't want to see and you know it's going to be painful for them to see like whatever you're gonna help reflect back to them but you have enough clarity of how things are unfolding you have enough experience that you see that this pain is useful medicine for them and I notice in my own I'm getting better at it I mean I, I think it just comes with practice being in seeing students having enough confidence how the mind works not just my mind or another person's mind, but just enough general sense of how the mind works. And, uh, and also confidence that pain isn't a bad thing. Pain that doesn't lead to learning is a bad thing. Pain that leads to insight or learning is a good thing. And, uh, but you have to be willing, like I have a deeply conditioned pattern to want to be liked. And so I, you know, as a teacher on all levels and friend, you know, I have to make sure that that attachment, that my mind's dependency on wanting to be liked and accepted, doesn't get in the way of doing the right thing. So that's the edge, you know, one of the edges for me as a teacher.
5: I have a question about uh, meta, about uh, sharing it with family. Now, I have a son who's just graduated from college and he's heading out to New Zealand to start his professional life there, and I I just had this video of me blessing him. Really, I'm going to bless you. And so I can go through the blessings of the metta and compassion and appreciation, but then I get to Equanimity and I just get a picture of him saying, Dad, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you care about me, but you don't care about me. And you're not controlling me. And I, I don't understand any of it. So I I think I don't understand that. So that's my question. How of deal with
1: <laughs> so practicing with the Brahma Viharas is—it uh, cultivates so many things. You know, it seems like we're doing this very specific thing. Okay, there's the phrases. There's the, we are trying to bring a felt sense or an image of the person to mind. You know, we're trying to connect with the heart. Um, so it can seem very techniquey. <clears throat> when we do it in the formal way, of course, it's also possible to do it just more free form, kind of like you're describing, like just somebody in our lives comes to our mind and the wishes begin to flow. But one of the things that's being cultivated is patience. We have to be patient with the heart. You know, these things develop, the heart opens according to its own, again, causes and conditions. And there are times when certain Beautiful states of heart and mind are accessible, more accessible, less accessible, or not accessible. At times when they might make more or less or no sense. So this is just part of the the practice. And the the most important thing to remember, however we, we practice cultivating the Brahma-vihara, is, is that it's impossible to force it. It's impossible to force it. And just as with insight, the opening of the heart is not an idea, it's not an opinion, it's not a philosophy, although we may have those about it. You know, we, It's very easy for all of us to see on an intellectual level that these things are good to have in our lives, that they're things that we want to cultivate, things that we want to share with uh, those that are in our lives. But then the heart will open in its own way, in its own pace, and these things will reveal themselves when it's time. And equanimity is by far the, mo- the most subtle one. This is why we, we there's a traditional order for cultivating the brahmaviharas, starting with metta, starting with loving kindness, because this is one that for the most part we can all get. You know, this is a, this is a very ordinary feeling. It's just a sense of, of friendliness and goodwill for, you know, at the very least for those that are dear to us, and then extending out from there. So that kind of makes sense. And compassion too is not such a stretch. You know, for, for all of us at times. In the face of suffering, compassion just naturally comes when we see that suffering, when we really take it in. At other times, other things may come, grief or sadness. So we get to see all of that in the course of the practice as well, everything that is not kindness, everything that's not compassion. Uh, Then the next one in line is is appreciative joy or sympathetic joy, being able to really delight in another person's good conditions and their good fortune and their happiness. This can be a little bit more of a stretch. You know, envy tends to creep in, or resentment, or all sorts of things can creep in there. So that's a little bit more of a stretch for us sometimes. Often when we feel happy for another being, it's because their happiness directly influences our happiness. <laughs> like, boy, am I glad that you're not suffering anymore. That makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> Which is not really mudita. And then last in line comes upeka equanimity. This is the hardest thing to get, and especially for those closest to us. This can be really difficult, which is why we go, why we take the path of least resistance. Because it doesn't matter, ultimately, who we're contemplating as we try to, as we work on cultivating these, these qualities of heart. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's our child or if it's a chipmunk. <laughs> because these are unconditional qualities of heart and mind. They're not dependent on, on who it is that's the subject, ultimately. So uh, metta is unconditional love or unconditional friendliness. It's true love in the real sense of it, that it's not demanding anything back from this other being, whatever their relationship might be to us. And it's the same with equanimity. It's not demanding anything <laughs> of this person's circumstances, but just simply recognizing on a deep level, this is the truth of things. We cannot control anybody's destiny, <laughs> not, our own, not even our own, the person that we have the most influence over in life. Let alone our children, <laughs> or that chipmunk, or whoever it might be. So it's, it's really perfectly fine and, and, and most effective with the Brahma Vihara practice. Just go in the easiest possible way. <laughs> Pick that being that is easiest to get it some sense of metaphor. Get really established there. Really hang out with that until there's a clear sense in the heart of that, that open heartedness, that goodwill. And then go to somebody that's just a little bit harder. <laughs> you know, then maybe when the heart is ready, move on to an opening to compassion and down the line until we can take in a little bit of a sense of the, the flavor of equanimity, which really underlies all of the other three. There's no way for, um, for our kindness, our compassion, or our appreciation to be unconditional if there's not that understanding of equanimity behind it or underneath it, supporting it. So be gentle with the heart, do the work, but be gentle and be patient and let it, Follow its own course. I have a question about the Vipassana method of falling asleep because often when I lie down I observe that my intention is oblivion, which is not awareness. Um and I have a history of Somnia, so fear comes up. But I also observe that when I decide
0: <laughs> wow. Um, um, I'll chatter on about that. Um, yeah, you know, I I, 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 I I guess I mentioned earlier the the monastery I went to, you know, has a schedule: of sit, walk, sit, walk, and. You can sleep all you want between 11 at night and three in the morning so you got four hours and of course initially it's like only four hours oh my god you know it's like you know you make sure you're right there ready to go at 11 o'clock and (laughs) set your alarm for three to get up but i found you know and as you as you are seeming to acknowledge that you know when you get a momentum of mindfulness throughout the day and and probably many of you experience it on retreat you don't you don't need as much sleep as you use as you think you do. You know, where at work and home you might think, I need eight hours, and you really do need eight hours to function. But here on retreat, maybe you only need six. And seems to be okay. So my experience in the monastery was four was a lot for most of the time. Most of the time didn't need didn't need four. And would just get up when I woke up. What I learned in that situation is to when awake practice when tired sleep and so i would you know take now i now i'm a napper i i like my nap you know and and i find that it's you know it's just it's just a 10 minute drop <clears throat> and that and then i'm refreshed and if i don't do that 10 minute nap then i really get tired much earlier in the evening so when I find myself ready for bed, sleep, but unable to sleep, then I don't fret and stew about it. I just lay there. I'm not doing active, like focused attention to sensations and thoughts, but I'm softly present with things. Not not, not making an effort to name, identify, to move the attention around or anything, but still I'm not just letting the mind aimlessly wander into agitation, anxiety, whatever else might, <laughs> might come to the surface. I'm not doing that. But I'm also not doing a, a, a kind of a formal mindfulness techniqueing of practice. But still, there's, there is a presence of mind there. And I watch, particularly I watch, am I getting upset that I'm not getting asleep? Because that, be, that can be the problem. It's like, Oh, I got I got to get to sleep, but I can't get to sleep. I want to get to sleep, you know, and then you can't get to sleep cause you're too jazzed up. So watching that, that attitude of mind or that reactive attitude of mind to not sleeping would be really important to do that. And the other thing is check and really see how much sleep you need. Uh, you know i mean we have we have a lot of scientific stuff and we have a lot of personal history and we have a lot of desires around sleep but to actually not need the sleep but try to sleep or to lay around in bed is more tiring than to get up so watch watch the mind that is really not needing to rest and sleep but you you you're keeping it there that mind can really. Really be draining. Kind of counterintuitively, but it can be really draining. Yes, the what is? The Yoga Sutra. Yoga Sutra. Oh, potentially.
6: First of all, still, first of all, patterning.
0: Yeah. Anybody familiar with the sutras potentially? Yeah. I'm going to make a general comment about different maps of the mind and then uh, Mark can make a comment. You know, this is one of the great, um, benefits of living in the 21st century West where we have access to every spiritual tradition and many iterations of it and It's great to have everything available along with this boon of having the opportunity is this Demanding responsibility to either try to make sense of it or to do some heavy editing and What I have found personally is that If you get one map of the mind, like as understood, or one map of the mind and practice as taught by one teacher or one tradition, to use that kind of exclusively within the context of your practice. And if you want to uh, take on another tradition of practice and another articulation of it, to do that exclusively within its own domain. We use, they all use the same words. We use the words awareness, consciousness, the mind, knowing, and this, you know, and the ground of nature. And, the na- and we use all these things commonly, but we have very different meanings. So I think it's only when you have very, when you're very familiar with each of the two traditions within themselves, that you can then begin to see how the maps overlap, or how they look if you overlay them, and where they are in sync and where they're not. But as far as just using the words, I mean, as you, as you said, here's a quote, what does it mean? No idea without, without a lot of practice, uh, within that tradition, wouldn't have any idea how to, how to even address it. So, uh, and that, that's something to keep in mind when you go to even another Vipassana retreat or another Buddhist retreat, uh, maybe using the same words, means something else. So you really have to look at what is the experience that those words are referring to, and in your own practice of the Yoga Sutras and by Patanjali in that thing is what is the experience in your own mind and body, not what do the words say, but what is your experience, and then how does that experience compare to the experience of, you know, mindfulness and others? Because you can use you can lose a lot of uh, you can use a lot of sleep trying to make sense of two different tri- languages that are describing the same map. And I'll give you the my 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 usual response to a question like that is, you know, if you took, you know, Salvador Dali up on the mountain to watch the sunset along with your local weatherman or weatherwoman, you know, up there, and the two of them would watch the same sunset. Right. They see the same thing. And then they come back down and try to tell a group of people what they saw. They would use very different language and different people would get an image of what they were saying. Now Salvador Dali, as you can imagine, is going to say things that the weatherman or weatherwoman is not going to say. Okay, but they're describing the same thing. They both had the same experience. So that's what happens when you get a lot of spiritual traditions talking about the path to awakening or the path to liberation or whatever it is like that.
4: That sounds good.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there anybody who has not asked a question that really There she is. Okay. Um my question has to do with uh, enlightenment. So behavior people enlightenment might be the best one. Who among us has the courage to address that one? Okay, Vance, you're a novice. You're gonna get you're gonna get questions like this. <laughs> Don't believe everything you hear. I guess uh, you know what I would what I would say is that there were men and women at the time of the Buddha who were not monks and nuns that got some of the stages of enlightenment. And, 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 and maybe were fully enlightened. I'm not sure. I'm not that familiar with the text. But certainly they had some stage of enlightenment. And one of our contemporaries, or who's recently passed, or passed away a decade or so ago, was Deepama. And I don't know if you know her, but Deepama is an Indian woman who practiced with one of our teachers, Manindra, and, you know, she was busy mom and, and grandma and uh, not particularly educated, but she had fantastic practice, fantastic uh, concentration and insight, quick, doing this practice. And so uh, there's just no, there's no truth to what you heard there's a general assumption that, oh, householders are too busy to practice and just look at your own life. That sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? But on the other hand, if you really make a concerted effort to be mindful in your, uh, and, and develop your paramis, the, the wholesome qualities of mind, then uh, you never know how many more steps you have to take to reach the goal. You just don't know don't know it might be just you know five minutes worth of walking that's it (laughs) done but there's no not going to be any road sign telling you that you know you just have to keep doing what you can do and see for yourself what the what the results will be and by the way when when you reach some or when you realize some stage of enlightenment whether it's first second third or final uh, you do not get a halo yeah so maybe we better wrap it up there since we're getting way out of the terrain of what we know anything about <laughs> and it's about 10 so we'll each have a chance to say something you want to start
6: sure, I can. <clears throat>
4: I thought I'd just uh, end with uh, this idea that uh, just makes a lot of sense when we're ending a retreat and wondering what we're taking with us. I came across in one of Joseph Goldstein's books a quote he quoted uh, Thoreau, where Thoreau says, although I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I'm prepared to expect wonders. And so this is, for me, maybe for you too, a really useful image as we leave the retreat, just a sense of all the wholesome seeds we've planted. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but seeds are incredibly resilient. They found seeds that are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, and they still germinate. That's amazing. And... uh, This, uh, of course, is this teaching on karma. Like something gets set in motion like coming to a nine-day retreat, the attention coming back to the present moment, being fearless, being patient, being interested. All of these intentional acts have planted countless seeds in whatever you want to call it, the mind stream or in this. But those seeds are there all of us and you can think of the seeds in terms of seeds of integrity or sila like uh, this commitment to non-harming or this commitment to kindness living in a kind and generous and respectful way we can think of these seeds as uh, seeds of skill in terms of how to take care of our mind knowing what to put down what to pick up what unwholesome tendencies of mine aren't going to help so we put them down what tendencies qualities of mind will help and we pick them up we cultivate them so these it's like uh, this natural momentum that we've added to this these last nine days and this is a useful story to tell ourselves you know the story that there have been not just in this nine-day retreat, but in this life, there have been lots and lots and lots of wholesome seeds planted, including wholesome seeds of wisdom. Even on the level of information, like having our view corrected by listening to talks and reading and reflecting, that information, though that, that, even on the level of information, like it's all a natural process that little piece of information is really potent it kind of gets under the mind skin them the thinking mind skin and it starts to use it to see is that true and then any actual insights where we have a more direct immediate experiencing of things as a natural process instead of this is happening to me very powerful seeds that begin to change so I like that image of a natural process that's leaving the retreat. You know, and this natural process has, has all of these seeds. And then our job is just to, you know, do our best to hang out in good soil with some enough moisture, taking care of the seeds. That's doable. Waking up is not doable for a person, you know, me. I'm going to do it like Deborah was saying with the Brahma Viharas, the qualities of love you know we can't make them happen but we can have faith through directly seeing that there are seeds here guaranteed there's this process that has some momentum momentum guaranteed and so i can figure out how to take care of this natural process better and better how to water it how to feed it that we can do and then of course then we inspire each other you know seeing Taking care of their awakening process inspires us to take care of our awakening process. So I offer this to you and wish you all the best in your practice. It's been really wonderful being with
0: you all. Vince, you want to say something?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to thank everyone um, and just express my gratitude for really being so generous and letting me kind of sit in uh, for the group interviews. And, you know, it was really a pleasure, you know, seeing individuals on an individual basis as well. Um, It's really meaningful to sort of see everyone's practice evolving over the course of uh, the nine or ten days or so. Um, And so I just really wanted to thank you, everyone, and it's really inspiring, you know, just it. It sort of uh, um, puts the fuel behind me, you know, to want to kind of keep going with with the practice with as much integrity as I can muster. Um, so I feel like it's an honor uh, to be here with you all, and uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for your practice, and I hope our paths cross again at some point in the the Dharma, the Dharma stream. So yeah, thank you.
0: When I think of, um, practice now for decades here at this lifetime that I'm aware of and just where most of the practice and how most of the practice happens, of course, retreats and time in the monastery was really important and dramatic in its own way. But without the intervening, uh, at times and activities being, considered some form of practice we would just be uh, taking one step forward two steps back and I think the understanding that you know the Buddha the Bodhisattva became a Buddha by perfecting what are called the wholesome qualities of the mind the paramis and they are familiar qualities of heart that we all know of and have developed to some degree generosity loving-kindness understanding equanimity renunciation letting go uh, energy making uh, speaking the truth or living truthfully uh, resolve in the mind and I always leave out one but these qualities of mind are not particularly Buddhist And they're not particularly qualities of heart or mind that you need to do sitting on a cushion. We have many opportunities every day to be patient, to be generous, to be loving, to be less reactive and more balanced. And these life provides us with all the opportunities we need with eyes open in, in any activity to do all the work of preparing the heart and mind for liberation. Sitting with our eyes closed on a nine-day retreat is good. It's developing all these qualities too, but it's not the only way. It's not the only thing we need to do. And so having the understanding that taking the opportunity every day to practice these paramis in whatever activity you're engaged in, your civic, social, domestic, professional um, responsibilities, obligations, keeps the thread of awareness and the idea that you are doing what you can to uh, awaken the heart uh, keep it alive on a day-to-day basis and you know the understanding in Burma is you know as lay people um, you know do your parami practice uh, at home for 10 months a year and go to retreat two months a year and you'll see every year that the The depth of your insight and the depth of your understanding uh, grows just by doing the uh, parami practice. So uh, I just want to expand your scope of what what practice really is. It's not just about sitting with your eyes closed. It's not just about doing retreats even. It's about awakening these qualities of, of heart that are the foundation for the liberation of the mind. We're well on our way. We just don't know it. But we're well on our way. And like, you know, like a snake in a bamboo tube, bamboo (laughs) stick, once you get started, you can't go back. (laughs) Or as Trungpa Rinpoche used to say, if we knew what was involved, you know, in this path, we never would have started. But now that we've started, we better finish. He also said, enlightenment is an accident. Practice makes you accident prone. (laughs) 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 So may you have accidents (laughs) and learn a lot from them.
6: (laughs)
1: We were talking in the staff room one evening after the talk um, and saying that as difficult as it is to practice in Burma, one of the great benefits of, of doing our practice there is the incredible atmosphere of faith that's just everywhere you go. You know, the, Everybody believes without a doubt. They didn't, don't even think about it. It's just a given that if you show up at the retreat center, you can do this practice and experience great benefits from it. I think that may be one of the reasons, this is just my own hunch, that the teachers sometimes are a little harsh uh, because they have no doubt about your ability to do it. So they don't feel a need to, to coddle you. you know, they don't feel a need to sugarcoat it to kind of keep you there, keep you from running for the gates <laughs> because they know you can do it. The lay people that are there, uh, you know, supporting the center, same as here, you know, they wouldn't be there giving their time and their energy and their work if they didn't think that the people that came could do it. Now we wouldn't be here if we didn't think you could do it. We wouldn't bother. So we have complete confidence in your ability to walk this path and to realize uh, meaningful change and improvement in your lives because of it. It's also the understanding in Burma that coming together in a retreat like this, um, even this big group of people, um, is is again, uh, due to causes and conditions that it unfolds lawfully so that there's this understanding that we don't just all kind of randomly end up here together we must all really have some powerful karma together you know maybe we've sat retreats together in past lives or been monks or nuns together in past lives or been close family members or dear friends with each other in past lives it's kind of a, a sweet uh, way of uh, understanding how we all come to be here together which is really a little bit uh, as i keep saying magic this retreat Experience is kind of magical. This is, we take this diverse group of people that all arrive here on the first day. We all take the refuges and the precepts, and you know we go to sleep, and the next day it's a retreat. <laughs> and then this morning we get up and we take a different refuge same refuges, different precepts, pack up our things, and the retreat's over. And so there's also the understanding that having done something like this together, we're bound to meet again in the future and many of you do cross paths, whether it's just here or at communities back home, and the, our hope is that wherever we may, may meet again, however we may cross paths again, that we may be able to meet each other as friends and as dear companions in the path, on the path, like-minded companions, which is, we all have seen is such a valuable thing, an invaluable thing in this process, the support of those around us that are going the same direction. So th- so we thought we'd close by just uh, some of the traditional reflections for ending a retreat. So you can get comfortable. Maybe let the eyes close if that feels comfortable. It's fine to shift the posture around as we go to stay comfortable. Steve and Mark and Vance and I wanted to begin by uh, acknowledging that we are human. <laughs> We're not saints, we haven't got that halo yet. We come here with a sincere intention to be of use, to be good spiritual friends, to offer what will be helpful to you and your path, but we also recognize that we don't always get it right. There are those times when we may say the wrong thing in the interview or what's said in the instructions or the talks may not be exactly what you need to hear. So we'd like to ask you for your forgiveness for those times that we may have messed up. If we said or done anything that's caused you discomfort or distraction or distress, we hope that you'll be able to find it in your hearts to forgive us so that we can meet in the future as friends and companions on this path. And so, too, we offer our forgiveness for anything that any of you might have done that caused us some discomfort or distraction. So if there are any thoughts of lingering embarrassment or confusion about things that may have come up in interactions with us, we want you to know that we harbor no ill will, no lingering resentment. There's no need to hang on to any of those feelings that might inhibit our friendship in the future. We can all let that go. Let it be water under the bridge. And the same with our fellow yogis here. As carefully as we've been living, as much effort as we've been putting into to be respectful, considerate in our way we share the space here. This is a large group of people sharing a relatively small space and we're bound to bump up against each other at certain times, bump up against each other's personalities and habits. This is just the nature of things when there's a large group living really in an amazing degree of harmony here as we have been recognizing too that yogi mind will happen, things will get magnified so if we've done anything either knowingly or unknowingly through our actions or our speech that may have caused another discomfort or distraction or distress can we offer our heartfelt apology can we connect with the wish that these other beings or other being may be able to forgive us, may be able to open their heart and let go of any lingering resentment that there may be out of the recognition that we are all here doing our best. May we be forgiven for any unskillful actions that we might have knowingly or unknowingly engaged in and so too can we forgive any of those around us that have been a source of distraction or difficulty distress can we let go of any lingering resentment or at least connect with that intention Connect with the intention for there not to be barriers between us, not to be bad feelings between us. So, can we forgive? And can we forgive? Can we offer our forgiveness as well to ourselves? If there's the lingering feeling, that we're dissatisfied with our effort here, if there's been a recognition during the retreat of the ways in which we've been harsh to ourselves, the ways in which this mind causes us harm and pain, can we forgive ourselves, our humanity, recognizing the sincerity and the power of the effort that we've made here? May we be able to forgive ourselves for those places where we're not yet completely skillful. So that we can return home with an attitude of friendliness and gentleness with ourselves. Considering now our many benefactors that it made it possible for us to be here. During our time here, we become very focused on our own process, the work that we're doing. And it's important to remember, as this comes to a close, all of the causes and conditions that have enabled us to be here, including the efforts of many other people, many other beings both here at the center and back home. The family members that have made do without us. That perhaps are holding down the home front while we're away. The neighbor who's checking on the mail, feeding the cat. The coworkers who are covering our assignments the things that need to get done in our work, any other beings that have contributed in some way materially or psychically to support us in being able to do this work. May the work that we've done here be of some benefit to them. May we be able to manifest the fruits of our labor, in a way that touches them for the better. That brings greater kindness, greater openness in our relation with them. Or in ways we may not even be able to imagine. And so too for the immediate support here the support of all the staff, some of whom we see, many of whom are behind the scenes out of view, the staff that's here both now and has been here over the past 40 years, running this place, making improvements, keeping it going, so that we can do this practice in this wonderful atmosphere, this wonderful setting that's so attuned to what we need. May they too benefit from the work that we've done here in some way, shape or form. Receiving some of this good energy, wholesome energy that we've been generating. And so too for all the teachers of this tradition, of this lineage, our teachers, our teachers' teachers, all of those across the world and back through time to the Buddha that have shared these teachings, realized them for themselves and passed them on to the next generation so that they're available to us today. May they too benefit in some way, wherever they might be now, whatever form, and all of the donors and benefactors of IMS, many of whom are probably sitting in this room, all of those who maybe don't participate in the daily running of the center, but have offered material support in one way or another over the years so that there are the resources for IMS to continue, for this practice to continue and to continue to be available without that support it would be impossible to go on and the donors to IMS are scattered all around this planet in every corner of the earth there are people who have been here who have accessed the teachings online benefited in some way and shared from their resources to support what we do here may they all share in the benefit of the work that we've done here in some way receiving this wholesome energy. It's also said that this energy, this momentum of goodness that we've generated here is something that we can share even with those who have died and passed on to another form of existence. Whatever that might be, there's no way of knowing but it's said that we can offer this good energy to them as well connect with the wish that the work that we've done here may may be a benefit in some way to those who are dear to us that have passed on to help them to arrive in a happy destination and enjoy good conditions wherever they might be, however they might be So sharing these good wishes with them. If there's any particular beings that come to mind. We're doing this practice for them as well. And finally opening up Our field of awareness to include all life on this planet, every human being, every non-human being, on the land, in the seas, in the sky. Can we connect with the genuine wish that our practice here may be of benefit ultimately to all beings, in some way, any way, however small? in ways that we cannot even fathom, can't possibly imagine. May the good energy, the good effects of our practice here spread out in ripples to touch every living being on this planet, including ourselves. May we be free from suffering and may all living beings everywhere be free from suffering.